Hi everyone, this is Tyler Buckingham, and I am pleased to announce a brand new feed on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN University. ASPNU is your podcast destination to access the cutting-edge thinking and research taking place on the campuses and research vessels of the elite academic institutions on the American shoreline. Here you will access the coastal discussions as never before, with engaging stories of cutting-edge research, innovative thinking, and students who will soon be the next generation of coastal and ocean professionals. This month, we kick off ASPNU with a four-part series on engineering with nature, featuring graduate voices from the Oregon State University. Hi there, I'm Megan Wengrove, an assistant professor at OSU and instructor for a coastal engineering with nature course. Our goal with this ASPN series is to explore the use of nature in coastal engineering design. In coming decades, we believe coastal professionals, engineers, and scientists must respond to challenges in a way that is more compatible with nature. We must learn to work with the natural world and not against it. Our weekly series premiering all month on ASPN features four ideas surrounding this theme, each story hosted by a group of OSU graduate students. This week on episode four, hosted by Spencer Harper, Ming Wong, and Edgar Velasquez Moreno, we will introduce you to the largest coastal marsh restoration project in the United States. At one time, we used these lands to make table salt, but now managers are working hard to make the space healthy for marsh grasses and critters. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for developing this series with Oregon State University and hosting and distributing our shows. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Spencer Harper, and in this episode we will be taking a look at the largest tidal wetlands restoration project on the West Coast, the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. Over the last 200 years, 90% of San Francisco Bay's wetlands have been lost due to the impacts of human activity. This reduction has put a strain on the health of the bay as wetlands serve an important role to improve water quality, provide habitat for endangered species, and create recreational opportunities while protecting the communities from flooding. This project was initiated in 2003 to restore over 15,000 acres of tidal wetlands and is part of a larger campaign to restore 40,000 acres of wetlands in the Bay. We'll hear about the complexities of this large project while also learning about the ecology, engineering, and challenges associated with sea level rise. To learn more about the wetlands restoration in the San Francisco Bay, and the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project, we spoke with Dave Halsing, project manager of the South Bay Salt Pond Project. The way it works is they, they hire an independent person to sort of coordinate the efforts of all of those different either partners or, or, or external projects or contractors. And so that's me. So I've been in that role for almost a year and a half, but I've been working on this project as a first as a consultant and then as sort of a deputy to the guy who did this job before me for 
probably eight or nine years. So it's it's a long history at the project. I worked as an environmental consultant, project management management mostly, but also with an emphasis on the regulatory aspects of things, permitting, environmental analysis, CEQA, NEPA, things like that, uh, and project management, biology, business development, things like that. So I was, what, 11 years in that role at a few different companies. Uh, I was a research biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey for seven or eight years before that. Uh, I studied biology as an undergrad in resource management and economics and policy as a graduate student. So good base of work for consulting. So, so that's me. Donna Ball, lead scientist of the South Bay Salt Pond Project. So I'm the lead scientist for the South Bay Salt Pond Project. And um, it's kind of my job to help direct the science for the project and to look at the science not only now, but going forward into the future. And so that's taking things like climate change and sea level rise into account. Cool. So, and then, okay, and then I said 50%, I'm half time for San Francisco Estuary Institute. It has, it's a leading science institution in the Bay that has over 60 scientists that are doing all types of work in the Bay and the Delta, so the whole estuary. And right now I'm starting work on a project for greenhouse gases and blue carbon in the Delta, as well as doing shoreline work in the South San Francisco Bay. So the two positions intersect really well in that it has the whole Bay focus and we're able to kind of look at both things. And then I'm, as part of the, the SFDI job, I'm also uh, co-chairing the Technical Advisory Committee for the Wetlands Regional Monitoring Program that's being developed for all of San Francisco Bay. And Elizabeth Murray, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers liaison to the project. My role on the project is I'm the Corps liaison for the um, project management team because I'm involved in Shoreline. And so I'm the Corps representative for the projects that the Corps has that are, that are involved in the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. But then I'm also on the science team. So um, I've just joined the science team. They are putting together a science framework for sort of approaches on how to restore all of these different cells. The project was initiated in 2003 when over 15,000 acres of wetlands was acquired for Cargill and Corporate. Senator Dianne Feinstein was like the key political mover behind it. There was a, a very active sort of citizens group is called the Citizens Committee to Complete the Refuge. Uh, they worked with Congressman Don Edwards to sort of get Diane Feinstein involved and to put some pressure on uh, on Cargill to be like, hey, you know, you're not you're not making any money with these bonds or you're not making enough. We'd like to buy some. You know, I don't know who approached whom first. Uh, it was long before my time on it, but um, you know, it was it was a degree of like economic opportunity for Cargill to maybe get rid of some uh, some things that were I suspect costing them more uh, more to maintain than they were getting from operating them as salt production ponds. Um, also, because the environmental permitting for the ongoing maintenance and improvement of the levees over time is pretty strict and pretty time and labor and money intensive. And so I think that all those things put together sort of led them to like, well, maybe we don't need all of these areas for this anymore. The funds to acquire the wetlands were provided by both federal and state resource agencies, including the California State Coastal Conservancy. The Coastal Conservancy is, is I don't know what you guys know about them. They fund all manner of sort of coastal 
restoration and enhancement projects, many or most of which include public access features, recreation, you know, sort of community involvement and engagement pieces of it. So they're they're like a super cool California state agency. And so they give a lot of grants to, to you know, city and county agencies and park districts and things to, to fund these kinds of projects. They also do some of their own. And as a consequence, they are the major sort of aggregator and acquirer of funds, um, some from their own line items, but also some from federal grants, other state grants, private donations, things like that. They sort of aggregate all that and they fund you know, the engineering, the modeling, the design, the, the CEQA and the environmental permitting, um, and then eventually the construction of all these different projects. They fund most of the science that we do, um, whether it's just simple bird counts or like sediment accretion monitoring, or whether it's a larger thing like an experiment. They fund a lot of that work and they fund, um, of course, my position as well. Salt marsh restoration projects are relatively new to the Bay Area and have provided many learning experiences for future projects. The history of restoration in the Bay can date back really like to the 70s. Some of the earliest projects utilizing dredge material to try to build up the elevation. And some of those projects were not completely successful. And so learning what we can from those, the whole community of practice has really changed their philosophy on on how these things ought to be built. And so, for instance, back in the early 70s, well, late 70s, early 80s, they would just bring in enough material to sort of, I call it gardening, <laughs> like they would bring it up to the elevation that they thought they needed for marsh um, and then plant it and walk away and expect everything to be and um, the problem with that is that if you overshoot it, if you don't know, if you don't have the the elevational changes in marshes are so small that if you overshoot it, it just becomes sort of this mass. And if you plant it with a species that is meant to grow on the east coast, that can cause all kinds of problems as well, which also happened back then. So. Based on some of those experiences and the fact that some of the dredge material maybe wasn't the right rain size or had other issues with it, so then if it's at the top, the plants are responding to that material and it's not the right thing. The community of practice here in the Bay really shifted to a different attitude, which was that if you have a site that is um, subsided, you know, two meters, which is not uncommon around here. Um, that you should not try to bring in all two meters of material. You should bring in enough to maybe get it to within a foot or two, maybe create the design such that you are focusing energy and, and reducing energy in certain areas to promote accretion and let nature bring the rest of the material in. And by doing that, a, you never overshoot, and B, the top layers of material are bay sediment, which is what the plants evolved to deal with. And so you know you've got the right stuff. It, of course, takes longer, but it tends to be more successful. We have this situation where a lot of the bay was diked off like 150 years ago. 
for different land uses. And in that time, um, it's all subsided. And all around the same time, maybe 10, 20 years ago, the commercial purposes for which those lands were being used became less viable. And so all of that land came up at once and there was sort of a choice among in the community of are we going to let it be built in and apartment complexes built in there, right up to the edge of the bay? Are we going to try to claim some of it back for for the marsh and also to create a barrier between the sea that we know is rising by now and um and the developed areas that have been developing for 200 years and and aren't going away easily. You know, marshes do provide protection from sea level rise and climate change. And part of what we're operating under is, is if we can do this work now, we will give those marshes and species a longer um, chance to survive. And maybe those marshes will establish to a point where they will provide that protection. So we are lucky in that these 15,000 acres that we're looking at restoring are right on the bay. And they provide, you know, some of each of them are three or 400 acres. And so if, if when you look at a map and you see how big they are, they there's a potential to provide a pretty good amount of protection if we can get them established. Yeah, we're all we're all just moving forward, you know, trying to help do what we can with climate change. And some of these other nature-based solutions like transition zones and um, looking at, you know, in marsh mounds and things like that. Um, I'm trying to figure out beaches that all hold for a while. But so all those are useful, I think, useful tools that will help us get down the line. Of course, it's a huge project. It's the largest wetland restoration on the West Coast, right? But um, but there is a lot of other really important work going on. People are doing the same thing, trying to restore marshes as quickly as possible and make decisions about restoration. There's a lot of work going on in the North Bay. Um, a lot of large marshes that have been restored recently and that are being restored. So it's, it is more of a bay-wide focus on trying to restore these, these wetlands around the bay. You know, we lost something like 90% of the wetlands around San Francisco Bay over the last 100, 150 years or so. And so we're just trying to find a way to bring those places back, bring back wetlands to the bay. You know, and for all the important reasons, you know, they provide flood protection and their habitats for species. And I think they're important for people. You know, right now, as, as we're in shelter in place and I go out for daily walks, I live fairly near the shoreline so I can walk over and go for a walk on the shoreline. And there, it's like, I would say 10 times as many people out right now really understanding this need for nature, right? To help kind of get through these difficult times right now. And I think that awareness has been there in the Bay Area, but I think it's being um, kind of magnified right now. So it's another important, I think we think about, oh, wetlands are flood protection and wetlands, you know, all these things wetlands do, but I think we often overlook what they do for humans in general. The Don Edwards National Wildlife Refuge is one of the landowners. I think, I hope that Dave mentioned that, that the project is owned, the property is actually owned by two distinct landowners, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the Don Edwards National Wildlife Refuge here, 
and then California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So they're two separate owners. While the South Bay Salt Pond Project is planning the work and implementing the work, those are the landowners. And so the refuge has a lot of public programs and public engagement and really gets volunteers out to not only like they do bird counts, they install plants, and then, and then a lot of other NGOs do that work as well. So Save the Bay, who I mentioned, takes about 30,000 people out to the shoreline every year to help do plant habitat restoration and install plants on the shoreline and, and generally bring people out to talk about the value of wetlands. A lot of folks are doing that work, bringing people out to explain the importance of these natural areas. So that's really important work. With the project being located at the southern tip of the San Francisco Bay, it provides it the opportunity to accumulate sediment and keep up with sea level rise. The very north end and the very south end have the least energy, and so they're in the best position to naturally create marsh, even if we weren't you know, here doing anything. Um, where some of these other areas, like this this whole area right here, where the Bay Bridge is, there's a few patches that are sort of in the lead and, and low enough energy to develop marsh. But for the most part, this things move pretty quick through here, and it's pretty deep, and there's a lot of energy. So there, it's not a really good place to make marsh. Um, so again, trying to think of those natural processes and not work against them. And, have them work for you is is crucial both for efficient restoration and sustainability of that restoration. As all of these areas need to have sediment come in, we're also sort of cursed with some poor timing, which is that the pulse of sediment that's been coming down from the Sierras since the gold rush just ran out that pulse of extra sediment that was probably abnormally high has just finished going through the system. And so just as we're starting to experience sea level rise, open these areas up and need sediment, we have less sediment coming in today than we have in the last 150 years. But then I was saying earlier that there's really two different kinds of material. And um, so the marsh plain really needs to be bay sediments. That's what the plants are going to be have evolved for, and and that's what needs to be brought in. And that's why this sort of approach of getting things to a level, but then opening it up and letting the bay uh, bring it up the final couple feet is is a good strategy. Maybe you could just kind of take us through the the restoration process. It's I assume it's not just you know opening up the berms and letting it be naturally. What kind of what kind of takes place? No, that's um, in, in the earliest phases, that's exactly what happened. So there, there's a few ponds that if you, if you see our project website, you can look for something called the island ponds or ponds A19, A20, and A21. If you can't find them, I can, I can point you to them, but they're, they're pretty well featured. They, they were, they're out. It, sort of away from human communities. There's nothing about them provided that situation I described with like keeping the bay out here and then the salt pond here and then the community back here. They're not like that. They were kind of at a distance from any community. So they were a place where like literally 
an excavator just went out and ripped a few holes in the levee and the tide started coming in and out and they started accreting. And if, if flood control were not an issue, uh, that could happen in more places. If, uh, if the need to keep certain areas as ponds or the need to also provide public access trails and, and, you know, viewing platforms and things like that that are also part of our project schools, if, if we weren't trying to do all those things, we could just do that everywhere, right? Like, in fact, we would do that everywhere because it would be the fastest way to get ahead of the sea level rise curve. The, the idea is that, yeah, the tides, that the tides have the sediment, right? So all you need to do is rip those holes to get the tides going in. Now, where and how you get those holes, yeah, you got to think pretty carefully about that, right? How big do they need to be? Um, you know, so that takes some hydro, excuse me, hydrodynamic modeling. It, it matters a lot how many of these breaches and how uh, where you put them relative to the interior area of that pond. Um, there are also some that, like I mentioned before, are too deep that we're just not going to be able to get tidal marsh there. So we set those aside for one. There are places where we have to do a lot of inboard protection to prevent increasing flood risk to communities. And so the process basically goes in picking the next batch of ponds that are going to be included in the project phase, thinking about what's the most appropriate use of them. And we do that by use of that adaptive management plan that I already mentioned, which is tracking not only how the marsh is establishing, you know, how fast is sediment accreting, uh, are we getting marsh vegetation there, are marsh uh, species of, of wildlife moving in. Um, you know, we use that, but we do the same thing on the pond side, right? How are how are high salinity uh, pond-dependent wildlife birds doing? How are small shorebirds doing? How are western snowy plover doing? We, we have people studying all these different things. So we take all of these different things we're trying to balance and weigh, and we bring those into the decision space of, okay, what's the next best batch of ponds, and then what should we do with them? What do we need to provide some habitat for? Uh, what do we need to – where is there flood issues? Where can we possibly make this work? Where can we put trails? So it's a very long interactive process. We have we have to meet with all of the different um, sort of public interest groups, you know, Audubon Society and and hiking groups and and uh, other wildlife advocates. Uh, we have to meet with the local flood protection agencies and all the cities and counties. We have kind of have to go through a long list of you know neighboring landowners, right? The utility companies, Pacific Gas and Electric and and Caltrans that have the roads and the bridges right there and all the high tech firms, right? All the, you know, all the neighboring cities and counties want to be a part of this conversation. We take all their inputs, we run it by them, we figure out, well, okay, this is our vision. And then we, and then we do some preliminary uh, designs around a bunch of these different alternatives. And then we run them through that NEPA CEQA process, right? So those, those are, planning documents, those are planning processes, and what they require you to do is develop what you think is your main project alternative, but also they make you look at a reasonable range of alternatives around that, and to weigh the environmental impacts and the different kinds of project benefits that might come out of those different alternatives. And you have to produce all those and circulate it in a public document, and you have to receive comment from the public and interest groups and, and regulators and everybody else, and then you can and then you can finalize your document and explain your reasoning about why you're going forward with what you're going to do. 
then you have to get environmental permits. So in order to get environmental permits, you have to do a deeper cut at design. You have to quantify how many acres of fill are we going to put in waters of the U.S. or waters of the state of California. How many different acres of habitat are we changing from one thing to another? How do we show that, you know, the short-term impacts from constructing a particular project are going to be offset by the longer-term benefits of that habitat being improved or expanded in terms of its area and quality. So then you get your environmental permits. Then you go back to the, the next phase of design, a deeper cut at design, where you have to get sort of all the easements and approvals you need from the cities and the, and the utilities and everything else. That's a very, all of these things are sort of legalistic and regulatory. Um, they're, they're not really engineering and they're not really science. They're supported by engineering and science, right? Those are critical elements of them, but that's not what they are. They're, they're fundamentally legal and regulatory. Then you get your easements, then you get to 100% design, and then you go to construction, and the construction can take however long it takes. Um, something like the Army Corps of Engineers, with a very large construction budget, they can buy the dirt they need to raise their levies and do all that. We're almost 100% dependent on getting free dirt from excavation projects, right? So the idea behind those, I mentioned this before, if we're not there, all that excavated material has to go to a landfill. You have to pay that landfill to accept it, right? So if it's clean enough, rather than pay them, they just give it to us, right? Then they save themselves some money. They import it into our project site, put it where we tell them to put it, and then they go on their merry way. And then we have another construction company come in later and grade it and compact it. And, you know, I think one of your questions asked about dredge material. We are trying to include uh, beneficial reuse of material that's dredged from different channels and ports and things around the bay. Um, it's actually extraordinarily difficult to do that. The, the material has to be very clean. Um, not all material is clean enough for that. Um, it's also very expensive. <laughs> you have to slurry it uh, quite a distance over, uh, I don't know how well you guys know San Francisco Bay, but you know, there's a deep water channel that runs down the middle of the South Bay, but outside of that, it's mostly very, very shallow intertidal mudflats to the extent where it's like in places it's four, five, six, eight miles from the deep water channel to the outer edge of the pond. So you have to slurry the dredge material with bay water and pump it over that distance to deliver it to the pond interior. So it's, it's a great idea, but there's some technical difficulties and there's some, um, financial difficulties in doing that. An important part of the South Bay Salt Bond Project are transition zones, the area between the restored marsh and the upland environment behind it. These transition zones are important for allowing the marsh to keep up with sea level rise while also providing a protective habitat for endangered species. And I've mentioned this a couple times, but, you know, the idea with these transition zones is really important. If you think about these ponds with these berms around them, you know, they're sort of like a bathtub, right? There's a there's a very steep side at each interior edge of the pond, and that means you only get a little bit of habitat at each elevation. And so if you can if you can gradually build a transition zone out, so you got a berm or a levee or even just a high ground, you know, out here, and sometimes that's a landfill and sometimes it's a natural hill, if you have that out here, build, you know, take this dredge material or upland material and build these transition zones out into the pond, you do create that ramp, right? Where 
the initial marsh might only be down here. But as sea level rise happens, the idea was that, yes, once it bumps up against that most inward levee or against a seawall or against the developed town, you know, all around the edge of San Francisco Bay, there's wastewater treatment plants. There's, uh, there's bridges and freeways. And um, in a lot of places, there's housing developments, right? Some of them have seawall. So you're right. There's a finite limit to how much of that can go on. But it, if we do it right and we do it well, we do by ourselves several more decades to figure out what to do as a region. That kind of thing is is beyond the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. It's beyond the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, National Wildlife Refuge. It's it's beyond everyone, right? That's the, like we as a country are going to have to figure out what to do with all of our coastal environments and how much how much give are we going to give to our oceans and our bays and our you know and our estuaries or how much are we willing to just build bigger and bigger seawalls you know um so what we're trying to do is do enough now that we extend the time for other people to think about that later right we we will provide important habitat for a bunch of endangered species for a long period of time um and not just endangered species like other sort of important you know migratory birds um, that are not necessarily endangered but that are you know comparatively rare and that the bay is an important habitat for them um these marshes do have some sea level rise uh, adaptive capacity right they do they do blunt wave runoff and wind waves. They do absorb that energy. They they do, um, you know, in terms of absolute tidal elevations, no, they, they can't stop that, right? But they can stop the more short-term things and, and sort of spread out that energy. And uh, they, they, in that way, they buy even a little more time. Um, and, you know, and of course they absorb carbon. So they, you know, they have, Global carbon emissions, are they going to be meaningfully changed by this one project? No, but like it's one little piece that, you know, is helping. We have uh, several endangered species, federally endangered species here. We have a salt marsh harvest mouse and a uh, Ridgeways rail, used to be called California clapper rail. Um, and those both rely on that specific area, that area between the marsh and the upland. And as sea level rise, rises, those areas are going to become smaller. And so these transition zones are also kind of a mitigation, you know, for them to help some of these endangered species. And not only them, but other plants and animals that would use that habitat. And it's one of the, what we call nature-based solutions here in the Bay Area that's really kind of dominating some of the plant as far as salt marsh restoration. In the South Bay area, especially, are really trying to focus on a transition zone between sort of the sharp flood risk levy and the bay. And there's a couple of really good reasons for this. Um, one is that if you've got a gentler slope, then you've got a little bit of room at least for your marsh to translocate with sea level rise. But that's out there in the distance. More importantly in the near term is that a lot of the species that are relying on the marshes including the endangered species, they need to be able to get up out of the water during king tides. And if you have a situation where you have a marsh and then a steep um, escarpment, even if it's just not an, an actual levee, but a um, just, you know, the berm 
around a marsh, it, it means that during those high tides, all of the air, all of the critters that are relying on that, you know, maybe 300 acres of marsh are compressing into a really narrow area, which makes them ideal for predators to pick off. And so if you can have that transition zone be wider so that they've got more area to go into, then you're not building up your populations of rails, for instance, just to have their chicks all picked off at the first high tide, at the first you know, spring tide. Same with the mice. So there's these threshold effects, right? So you can have a really, really beautiful marsh that's providing excellent habitat for those species. And if they're going to get wiped out every time there's a king tide, it may as well not be there. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in hyper, hyperbole to an extent, right? So I, mean, I don't think that's entirely true. Not all of them are going to get picked off. But you're not providing nearly as good of habitat as you think you are based on the 95% of the time, you know, the critters are happy. If 5% of the time, 90% of them are getting wiped out because they're getting concentrated into these small areas where they can be picked off by predators. So this concept is called a refugia in the sort of local parlance. I don't know what other areas call it. And so the ecotone serves as a refugia, a higher area for these things to get out of the way during those high tides. The ponds had previously been used for salt production. Therefore, the salinity of the ponds during the restoration project was an important factor to be aware of. The way the salt making went, you know, there was these different, these different cells, and in each one, they would evaporate a little water out, so it's a little more salty than the surrounding bay, and then they would, they would open up the gate and, and move it into the next cell and close it off, evaporate a little more, it got a little saltier, and then they, so at each stage along the way, it would get a little more saline, and at, at the end, it was, you know, basically a crystallizer pond where they would just, I mean, it gets firm enough, they can drive a truck across it and, like, just literally scrape it off. It's salt, you know. Um, and so when the, when the ponds were first acquired, the first thing they had to do was, like, stop doing that and put a bunch of water control structures into these former ponds so that they could gradually, you know, bring in a little bay water and then wait for some winter rains to reduce the salinity and then release release it back to the bay. Because you can't just you can't just release like massively hypersaline water into the bay, right? And so there are there are regulations about that. So you can be you can be saltier than the bay, but you can't be like three times as salty as the bay, right? So um you know, they, they spent a long time just gradually bringing this salinity in those ponds down. And most of them now are pretty close to ambient bay water salinities. Not not entirely, right? Some of them are very large and only have like, you know, one water control structure in and one out. And so they're, they're still saltier than the bay, but not like they used to be. Is there a, a guideline to get to the ambient salinity before restoration can take place? Yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we're there now in in anything that we would make tidal. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I forget the parts per you know parts per thousand might be, or yeah, parts per thousand might be. Uh, I mean, the bay ranges so much throughout the course of the year. You know, summer to winter, winter we get all the rains and it it gets more it gets more brackish. 
and then in summer it gets more saline. Uh, you know, the ocean's 35 on the west coast here, so the bay might might get as high as you know 40, 45 parts per thousand. Um, I think the waste discharge doesn't let you do more than 75 or 80 parts per thousand. Those those numbers are not exactly right, but it's in that ballpark. When the salt ponds um, were operating, many of them are really high salinity. They they dry them out at particular times of the year for commercial purposes. You know, that's part of producing salt is drying them out and and then harvesting the salt. So over the years, a lot of birds that rely, you know, a lot of birds along the Pacific Flyway have come to rely on some of those salt ponds as habitat. You know, a lot of habitats where migrate, migrating birds have used previously along the coast or development maybe inland, you know, got um, paved over or developed. And so the salt ponds became a really great place for a lot of those shorebirds. And so when you think about that, you know, we think, oh, well, let's just restore them to wetlands. Well, if we do that, then they become, maybe become tidal marshes, which is a whole different suite of wildlife and animals um, from what the salt ponds were. So that's part of our management um, uh, challenge is making sure that we don't lose habitat for important species while also considering that we may be creating habitat for other other important species. When this project started out, people knew about sea level rise. I'm kind of getting to the end of your question. We thought we'd have more time to deal with it, right? So if you look at the earliest documents on this project in the mid-2000s and even into 2010, 11, 12, you know, it was like, yeah, this is a thing. But in the first in the first couple of phases, we can assume a relatively stable range of, of tidal elevations in the bay and we can build to those and, and as time goes on we'll have to gradually sort of plan for higher uh tidal elevations as it's turned out you know the modeling and, and all available monitoring and science and anything else indicates sea level rises faster and, and uh sooner than we thought right and, and greater greater and sooner so we're having to incorporate it in a slightly new way right we used to think if we we built these marshes or, you know, kind of laid out the plan for these marshes, built some transition zones up against the backside levees um, so that there was a nice little ramp on which sea level rise could, you know, sort of migrate upward over, you know, several decades. We used to think that if we did all that early enough, uh, the suspended sediment concentrations of the bay were sufficient that... Um, it would be able to, you know, the uh, marsh, marsh accretion and, and maturation and up, upslope migration would keep pace with sea level rise. And in places, I think we still think that's true. The places where the ponds are pretty much at the right elevation now, if we open them up soon, we still think that will work. But there are places where the ponds are um, subsided a little bit, largely from uh, agricultural uh, withdrawals, like way back when. Um, you know, people were pumping out groundwater and that gradually just reduced the uh, elevation of the aquifer, including out into the bay, so that they're they're lower now than they used to be. In places, the bottoms of these ponds are lower than the than the surrounding bay floor. Does that make sense? So if sediment uh, concentrations in the bay are 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 flat or if they start to decrease, some of these these holes in the bay may be too deep to ever fill naturally. And we'll never get marsh there, right? So one thing we've done to adapt to the expectations about sea level rise is 
make sure to include the starting elevations of these ponds, right? So that we are making smart choices about which ones we think have a good chance of becoming marsh. The ones that we think are too deeply subsided to begin with, well, those are the better ones to keep as, as ponds for pond-dependent wildlife, right? And so those are the ones we're just going to build up the levee around them and try to keep them as these sort of contained ponded areas. So far, the project has restored over 3,000 acres of saltwater. Phase two is currently in construction with the goal of 75,000 acres of total salt marsh restoration by the end of the project. The project laid out these this long-term vision of a restoration staircase wherein of the 15,000 acres of the project, we knew at least 50% of it should be made into tidal marsh, but that other 50% might need to remain in some uh, kind of, of, of pond. Um, over the 150 years that these, these different ponded off areas, sectioned off areas of the bay have been in salt production, a lot of wildlife got used to them. And, and in some ways, many of them have become dependent on having these isolated areas away from, uh, away from tides, away from predators that have, you know, lots of small insects and fish in them that have different salinities that different types of birds like and use. And so we wanted to make as many of those areas tidal marsh as possible without adversely affecting all of these different kinds of pond dependent wildlife. And so because no one knew what the wildlife response would be to these things that they, they sort of said, all right, we'll, we'll do a few. We'll see how the wildlife responds. We'll do, we'll plan another few. We'll do another batch. Right. And so they sort of laid out this program that might go out to 2050. Um, but that might end much sooner if, if we've effectively done all the restoration we could, or, or if, you know, if things move faster than, than expected, then we would be done sooner. But it was always envisioned as a, envisioned as a multi-decadal, uh, multi-phase project. So um, ending up somewhere between this 50-50 mix of habitats and a 90% tidal marsh, 10%. But not necessarily one or the other. could be anywhere in between those two bookends, right? They always talk about the either the staircase, right? Like where you sort of march up the staircase of, of gradually more and more tidal marsh. And where you stop on that staircase depends on uh, sort of how all those other kinds of wildlife are doing. And so that's the the time frame was intended to be like a 50 year max or a 90% tidal marsh max, but not that it would necessarily take all that. Does that make sense, Spencer? I see you guys nodding, but I want to make sure I'm not. That's really interesting that it's kind of a moving target and, you know, you try and, or I guess it's a flexible target. That, that yeah. is interesting. Yeah. The, the, they said there's a minimum we will do and there's a maximum that we will do. And exactly where between those endpoints we stop will be based on these standards that we laid out at the beginning, right? And even now, as it turns out, we're when we get done implementing phase two, which is probably gonna take another, you know, five years or or so, we'll be just shy of fifty percent of the total project area in Tidal Marsh. As the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project begins Phase 2, soil is currently being delivered to the Ravenswood Ponds near Palo Alto to construct new trails and habitat for wildlife. And it is expected that this fall there will be two additional levee breaches in the Alviso Ponds to help facilitate further marsh growth. During today's podcast, we got an in-depth look at one of the nation's largest wetlands restoration projects.
Today's guests discussed with us the history of the project and how salt production facilities have been turned into flourishing wildlife habitats, the history of salt marsh restoration in the San Francisco Bay, the impacts of sediment loadings on the project, and the restoration techniques used to combat sea level rise. That is all we have for today's episode, and I would like to express my gratitude to Dave Halsing, Donna Ball, and Elizabeth Murray for taking the time to share their knowledge with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you next time. This podcast was developed, produced, and edited by Spencer Harper, Ming Wang, and Edgar Velasquez.